Hello, I'm Mallory Rubin. And I'm Van Lathan. Check out the Ringerverse podcast from The Ringer for all things superhero movies, nerd culture, and fandom entertainment. We have instant reviews and fun takes on all the latest news and more available now on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. All right, it is Monday, June 13th. I hope you had a nice weekend. Today we're going to be talking about a subject that goes back 100 years. When the movie business first started, the studios all kept the information about who was watching what to themselves. But it turned out that the studios, because they had to show their movies in theaters, the theaters needed to know what was successful and what was not successful. Hence, we had the revelation of box office. Every week, initially in the trades, but now thanks to the internet everywhere, box office would be reported. What movies were doing what gross? When TV came along in the 1940s and 50s, there was this similar question. Who's watching what? Nielsen stepped in and said, okay, we're going to be the outside third-party arbiter of who is watching what. So the advertisers that place ads on television will know who is watching their ads. Decades passed where Nielsen became a dominant force in TV. Everybody knew that Friends was watched by 30 million people the night before. Seinfeld was a huge hit. Football was the biggest thing on television. Everybody knew it was an even playing field. Then along comes streaming over the past decade. And the streamers decided, hey, wait a second. We could actually benefit if we kept all this information to ourselves and didn't reveal this. They don't sell advertising, or they didn't at first, so there was no advertiser concern at Netflix. They said, you know what, we're just going to pretend that this information doesn't exist and keep it all to ourselves. And the creators kind of went along with it. They didn't love it, but there were some that said, you know what, I don't like the fact that every morning after my show airs, there's a referendum on whether it's successful or not. So they just went along with it, and Netflix said, you know what, we're going to keep this information to ourselves. Increasingly, that has been untenable. The talent and the agents that represent them want to know how the shows are doing. So Netflix doles it out as they determine, um, as the least that they possibly can, while making people feel okay with the information that they give them. And they started these top 10 lists where they do put out information, and it's all coming from Netflix itself. But what it's allowed is there's now an ecosystem around streaming where there are a bunch of different companies that use a bunch of different metrics to try to figure out who is watching what 
on streaming, not just Netflix. We pick on them because they're the first mover, but it's all the streaming services that are very opaque about the consumption of their content. So we're going to have one of the analysts on today, Julia Alexander, who works at Parrot Analytics. And they're one of the companies that uses a metric to determine what the demand is for certain shows. And we're going to talk about two of the summer's biggest blockbuster shows, Stranger Things Season 4 and Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+, Plus. Stranger Things on Netflix, of course. And we're going to get into it. What's winning? What's not winning? Because Nielsen now does put out a streaming ratings number. And they use their own metrics and they get some information from the services. They use it. Uh, they use other information from smart TVs and phone companies and other places where they get information and they put out their own streaming numbers. And, you know, you take it with a grain of salt because none of this stuff is as accurate as we would like, but it's all we got. And we're going to get into it today on who's winning the streaming race, Obi-Wan Kenobi or Stranger Things. I'm Matt Bellany and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Julia Alexander. Julia is Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics, which is a data measurement and consultancy firm that handles all things streaming. She's also a contributor at Puck, where I work, and writes about the streaming wars and who's watching what. So I thought she would be the perfect person to come on and break down probably the the war of the summer right now, at least so far. I mean, people are talking about Top Gun versus Jurassic World, but more people are watching Stranger Things and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And we got some data this past week from Nielsen, which is you know, arguably the independent arbiter of streaming because they had a brand in linear television that was the one accepted metric that everybody used. It's a little more complicated in streaming because all these services hoard their information. So Nielsen has to get creative in trying to figure out who's watching what. But... The numbers that Nielsen put out this past week was that Stranger Things season four got 12.7 million viewers for its opening weekend, and Obi-Wan got 11.2 million viewers. So Stranger Things is beating Obi-Wan. Do you believe those numbers? Do you think they're interesting? What stands out to you from those? There's no question that Stranger Things is beating Obi-Wan in terms of consumption, in terms of demand, in terms of general awareness and recognition. I mean, as far as Obi-Wan is a Star Wars show, and there's always some form of a Star Wars show on Disney+, Plus, the fact that Stranger Things was able to capitalize on a meme that came out of a song in the fourth episode, the fact that people were able to binge The Kate Bush thing. One- the Kate Bush thing, exactly. Mm-hmm. The fact that people were able to binge it all in one season and they're kind of left on a cliffhanger leaves it right for discussion. But I think also, to, as we're talking about the numbers for these shows, I think that's a really important part to discuss, which is the fact that Obi-Wan dropped two episodes, about 45 to 55 minutes each. Stranger Things dropped an entire season that came in at about, I think, like 535 minutes. So if you're going to compare viewership based on minutes watched alone or hours watched as Netflix reports it, it gets really, really skewed towards Stranger Things just because there's more opportunity for people to watch more. And those episodes are so long. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. They're too long. They, they have no filter, no edits, nothing. It's kind of nuts. Yes, uh, Netflix put out a press release. I mean, this is a big issue in the industry. As long as I've been covering Netflix, everybody has been frustrated by the lack of transparency and the data that they put out. They're better than they used to be, but people, you know, it's just, it's coming from them. So you are just naturally distrustful when there's no third-party independent auditor 
saying this is real, this isn't real. But but with that in mind, Netflix put out some numbers saying that according to their stats, in week two, Stranger Things 4 broke three new records. It was the most watched season of English language TV in a single week. So that's, you know, excluding Squid Game. It had 335 million hours viewed in the last seven days. So that means... AKA that's that is just a fuckload of people watching Stranger Things. Uh, hit number one in the top ten list in ninety one countries. That's the first, and in less than two weeks, it has become the first series to jump into the top three on the most popular list with six hundred and twenty one million hours viewed. A lot of word salad there. A lot of just data thrown out. What what does that actually mean? The biggest question with, that I always have with viewers, with, with hours consumed, is like, so all these people watch the show. That's great. If we assume that the majority of these people are like hardcore Netflix users who we're going to keep Netflix in general, this is great for Netflix in terms of the fact that Stranger Things is a successful franchise for them, which they knew. The question I have that we don't get from hours consumed or minutes consumed is how many of those people came back to Netflix for that show? How many people came to Netflix for the first time to watch Stranger Things? And then how many of those people are sticking around 30 days, 60 days, 90 days later. I was talking to some pals um, who work on a strategy at one of the big, big uh, entertainment companies. And we were talking about the fact that when we're looking at what it consider what what constitutes a success, there's still this immense pressure to look at opening weekend and then, you know, seven days later, 10 days later, and that makes a ton of sense. But with streaming, the idea is to have sustainable revenue driven by a couple of key shows to, to different people in different demographics. And so Stranger Things is a show where you get a an insane growth, you know, Game of Thrones level HBO Now style growth where people are coming into the service, but they're dropping off 30 days later. The hours consumed don't necessarily translate to a strong business model for Netflix, which is the question, I think, for them at, at in this moment. It's how valuable is this $300 million show in the long run, in terms of what your what your customers are watching and what they're coming in to watch. Well, a hit in terms of viewership is better than not having yes. a hit in terms of viewership. <laughs> and yeah. I'm sure there is a Netflix algorithm somewhere that says that we can take the number of hours viewed and translate that into the number of people who came to the service to watch it and are going to stay. And they're doing a thing this season where they are splitting it up. And you have to at least be subscribed for two separate months in order to watch all of season four. So those are tactics that they are taking to uh, to kind of translate the interest in the show into revenue. But you're right. This is, you know, the old days of regular television. It was all about what the viewership number was because you could translate that into advertising and there was a direct correlation. But when you're in the subscription video business, it's not just about eating hours. It's about getting people into the ecosystem, getting them to pay and keeping them there. And, you know, I would argue that for a certain audience, the star Wars shows on Disney plus are more valuable than Netflix has, than stranger things is to Netflix because there is a class of Disney Cl- Disney Plus subscriber who only stays in the ecosystem for either the Star Wars or the Marvel shows. Right. And I think that speaks to an important part about the question of, you know, hours consumed on something like this. If you don't have advertising, which they are, you know, both Disney Plus and Netflix are set to introduce. So this will become a, you know, much bigger part of the equation for those advertisers who want to be on the service. But if you take that out of the equation, the question of like who is watching this is deeply important. Because if I'm Disney and I'm Bob Chapek and I've promised, you know, kind of insane multiples on my growth for Disney Plus, which 
works out to be about 10 to 11 million subscribers being added every quarter over the next 10 quarters to hit the goals that he promised the walls. He promised the street, which is 230 million subscribers minimum Disney plus globally by fiscal year 2024 is Star Wars a growth engine. If you're putting in all this shows for Star Wars and you're retaining that core group, like that's great for sustainable revenue. But are you actually bringing in new subscribers with each new Star Wars show, with each new Marvel show? As we are recording this, Miss Marvel just dropped. It's the, the new Marvel show on Disney+. Plus. And I thought like it's kind of interesting to have this moment where you're dropping these two big shows on the same day. I almost want them to spread that out. And I almost wonder how that compounds into hours watched across the service in general, hours watched across new subscribers versus current subscribers. And I think what's missing in all the data points that we get, and I know, Matt, you've covered this industry for a long time. So I know you remember when it was like, this movie is the most watched movie in like a 24-hour window on the service. And they wouldn't give, they wouldn't give you any numbers. So this is like almost an improvement, but we still, we're not, we, we still don't get the demographic ratio that you get with Nielsen and other companies. Like we still don't have a lot of this underlying information that really helps us understand how people, like how the business is doing and why people are watching it and who's watching it. And I think without those key factors, it's really difficult to just make Apple to Apple comparisons to what we, you know, what we've had in the past with linear television. But we do every quarter get that subscriber number. We do. That's all they care about is keeping that subscriber number up, keeping the revenue per subscriber up. And I think you do at this point, you do need to have these Marvel shows and Star Wars shows every quarter mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. keep those people interested. Because the last thing Disney Plus, yes, they have to grow, but they also can't give back those people who subscribe just for the Marvel and Lucas stuff. No, exactly. And I think the other part that we get with the earnings, which is my biggest question going into Netflix's next quarter, is, you know, Stranger Things comes out. I do wonder if this surpassed even their expectations. I'm sure that they knew, you know, the show's been away for two years, three years. It comes in. Like, I'm sure they expected big numbers. But they also projected a 2 million subscriber loss in the same quarter that Stranger Things and Umbrella Academy return. And so the interesting thing about that number specifically in relation to the viewership numbers that we get is how much, again, of that audience that you're expecting to potentially bring in with Stranger Things is no longer coming in for Stranger Things? How much of that audience is your core Netflix space, which you don't really have to worry about because they're not going anywhere. You do have to worry about reclaiming lost subscribers and figuring out how to grow in, in, in new markets that are in increasingly becoming more saturated. So to your point, I think the Obi-Wan viewership proves that Star Wars is still strong, which no one was questioning. Like, there is an audience that wants to watch Ewan McGregor reprise this role, and they're very into it. Um, but I think it's also what's really interesting about Disney Plus viewership numbers that I really want, and this is what we don't get out of our current system, is what is the viewership uh, demographic and numbers on the non-franchise shows, on all the original content that they're trying to do? Like, as if that becomes another part to reach out to an audience who's not interested in Star Wars or Marvel— what are those shows pulling in? What are those films pulling in? And we don't know because they get to be incredibly selective with the data that they do release. My pick for the most valuable show to a streaming service, I want to know what you think about this, Euphoria. Interesting. Because Why? think about the Euphoria audience and then think about what the typical HBO audience is. Euphoria is way younger, way more diverse, way you know there's a hbo is considered like your father's pay tv network right and here's a show that's delivering 14 million viewers many of them younger and most of the viewership is hbo max not linear tv so the value on having a show like euphoria i think is gigantic 
Yeah, and it was explicitly designed, right? You have Casey, who's voice, who's incredibly good at his job overseeing HBO and HBO Max. You have um, Jason Kalar, who just left and who understood that HBO Max needed to be a younger, more female kind of centric platform compared to HBO, which was slightly older and male. Um, and they had to move into that space that at the time Netflix was heavily dominating. Like Netflix was you know, on the CW, which but people watch the CW shows on Netflix and they were going to watch their teen shows there. And they said, we have to come in. We're going to do this in a way that's edgy and HBO. So you partner with with A24. You take, you know, A24's biggest success is a TV show, uh, not a film. And they send it off and you have Zendaya kind of at this moment of cultural greatness. And yeah, you have this perfect thing that that fits. I think in terms of what is the most valuable to a streamer, it's, it's territory by territory. Because I think if we look at a market like the U.S., if we assume that Netflix is the benchmark for success, and I don't like doing that because I think it puts too much emphasis on Netflix as the North Star, which Netflix I don't think it necessarily is anymore. But if we assume that 75 to 80 million households is saturation point right now in the US, it's really hard to use original programming to grow like exponentially. What you're trying to do in that market is retain and grow like incrementally quarter after quarter. So your catalog becomes extremely valuable because what people come and they watch you for it. To your point, Matt, like if we talk about kind of Game of Thrones, right, with HBO now, they would see like 300% growth overnight when Game of Thrones premiered on HBO Now, but then they would see the same loss when Game of Thrones ended. So I think if you're looking at what's really valuable to HBO Max, Euphoria absolutely for expanding that audience and bringing in a whole new class of audiences who are also re-watching old HBO shows now, who are like re-watching The Sopranos and The Wire, like they're, they're, they're returning to it. But also, you know, Friends, The Big Bang Theory, like those shows are what convince yeah, you people get, you to gotta have originals paying. to bring them. And Kevin Mayer, the, the executive, just told me this last week. Originals bring them in, library keeps them. But and, and and so the originals growth is is in, increasingly more important internationally, where there is room for exponential growth. And as you kind of figure things out in the states, like yes, you need your originals in order to keep people entertained. You you need your originals to also bring in potentially new subscribers who are just not necessarily interested in what you have currently. That's why Disney keeps saying over and over again, like we're heavily invested in original programming outside of Marvel and Star Wars because we know that. Um, but I do think. As you, with the, 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 the more subscribers that you end up collecting in general, like you look at a Netflix, if we look at what people watch a ton on Netflix, like some of it's originals, but a lot of it is like NCIS and Criminal Minds. And it's like, so I was talking to a pal who works at a, a major production company. And I said, what are you watching on Netflix? And she just said, Criminal Minds. She said, all I watch is Criminal Minds. And then she's like, if, she's like when <laughs> was that this goes pal to 70 Plus, years old? No, no, she's she's in her like mid thirties, and she's like, when that goes to Paramount Plus exclusively, I'll just switch over to Paramount Plus. And I think like that though is wow. a big thing where people well, are like, what kind I... of person is only watching Criminal Minds at this point? Uh, but I do think like so if we look at the viewership, what's evident in this is that they're you know Disney Plus and Netflix are trying to figure out their franchise builders. Obviously, Disney Plus has pretty figured out pretty. Um, pretty well. And every quarter they have a new Star Wars show, a new Marvel show. Like they know what they're playing into. I think with Netflix, I'm looking at what's happening with Stranger Things. And on the one hand, I'm really excited about it because it's great. But on the other hand, you know, there's only one more season of the show left. Like there's half a season this summer and then there's one more. And there's no real big franchise builder coming out of the woodwork that we've seen at least that can take over that top spot that can kind of be this thing that goes head to head with a Star Wars show. And it's well, like Squid Game, if they ever get that act together. But the creator has been like, oh, I guess I could do another one. You know, I had, didn't really think about it. But yeah, I guess we'll at some point we'll do it. Um, I mean, yeah, Stranger Things was the first show for Netflix, as you wrote for Puck. It came about in 2016 at a time when Netflix was growing exponentially overseas. It was the first real franchise show that played everywhere and delivered an audience, you know, globally. 
that's what they want. They want shows that will play across territories. And it's really hard. I mean, Star Wars is Star Wars because of 40 years of pent-up franchise. Netflix doesn't have that. They got to create that on their own. And they have it with Stranger Things. They have it with Squid Game. But they don't have it for a lot of other stuff. I mean, or they got to they got to buy it, but that didn't go well for them when they tried, right? With Millar World, they like oh, those are going the oh, few right. acquisitions yeah, they tried, that they looked into. They tried to buy IP. I mean, they bought the Roll Doll Estate and they bought a couple of things that they think can be franchise generators, but for the most part, it hasn't happened. And it's so much easier for Disney to say, okay, here, you know, you like that Star Wars show? Here's five. Yeah. And I mean, the person who works at Netflix, who kind of, I don't know if he oversees all of franchise development, but, or who's heavily involved is like former Disney who worked on like the live action franchises. Like the, the Netflix knows what they're trying to do. I mean, they all are trying to be Disney. You no, know, Zaz is like trying to literally mold Warner Brothers at this point into a the Disney. C- this David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers. Discovery. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Uh, I just assume everyone who listens to your podcast, Matt, would Not know, everyone. But, not everyone. But yeah. No, I um, but yeah, so I mean, like, like it's 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 a it's a difficult thing to accomplish. And I think Stranger Things not only are the viewership numbers extremely impressive for for as much as they tell us, like yes, people are watching Stranger Things, but I think the cultural resonance of that show on TikTok, like like in Walmart, like in, in terms of what that show has become for Netflix, is exactly what Netflix is trying to do for everything else, and it's really hard to manufacture franchises. You know, Disney bought its two ones, right? It bought Marvel and it bought Star Wars and molded it into what it is now, but like. It's really difficult to accomplish. And I think with Netflix, if I'm them, I'm looking at Stranger Things. And I'm thinking, like, what is the next time that we get something like this that is maybe season two of Squid Game? Like, maybe that momentum is still there. Maybe it's Bridgerton and that momentum kind of picks up. But otherwise, there's not much where you can point to, like, you know, Disney can point to Obi-Wan and say, cool, even if this doesn't do as well as we wanted it to, and, and it clearly is, we're going to have Andor that comes out in August. Like, we're going to have, a, you know, we're going to have She-Hulk if Miss Marvel doesn't do well. There's always something, and then there's the movies, and we can always blend into it. With Netflix, like, these numbers are incredibly impressive, but how do you replicate it? And if I'm the street, that's my big question. It is, like, what is the longevity on your investment at a time when the market is extremely bearish and it's, like, extra concerning when it comes to streaming? And I think that's, like, a scary proposition. Yeah, because every show is a one-off. You gotta you gotta deliver and deliver and deliver. And Disney has this machine. So ultimately, long-term ultimates here. Who wins? Stranger Things or Obi-Wan? Who gets most more viewers? Because Obi-Wan is, you know, the week by week drops and they're they're dragging this thing out. And Stranger Things, we probably won't talk about much until the next, you know, the final couple episodes drop. And then we'll talk about it a little bit, and then we won't talk about it again. So who ultimately wins here? I think it all depends on what the last three episodes of Star Wars do. I think, like, they just, you know, spoiler alert, here's your whatever. But in the last episode, like, or the one that just last week, not this week's episode, you know, like, Darth Vader's there, and Darth Vader squares up against um, against Obi-Wan. And so, like, you know, anyone who grew up with Star Wars is like, this is the thing I want to watch. So, actually, with Obi-Wan, I'm much more interested in kind of episode three, episode four, episode five, episode six viewership than I am episode one, episode two. Um, in the same way that I am kind of with HBO stuff, where I'm much more interested in the HBO finale viewership than I am with the premiere of, of a show or, or the return of a season or whatever it might be. Um, what we do see, or what I see when I look into the research, is that the weekly does tend to outperform binge on dramas, especially ones like this. 
this. But with Stranger Things, the tail end is so long that even comparing it to WandaVision, which had a really strong like growth week after week after week for, for Disney+, Plus, it was pretty on par with Stranger Things uh, season three, like in terms of just demand, in terms of like the consumption patterns. So I would not be surprised if Stranger Things just edged out Obi-Wan a little bit, but I think it's going to be neck and neck. I don't, I don't think there's going to be like one that's insanely more in uh, view than the than the other but I, I do I would put my money on stranger things for just slightly edging it out and while I've got you who's gonna win the battle of Lord of the Rings versus House of the dragon <laughs> oh yeah later this summer the Game of Thrones prequel House of the dragon is coming out then followed shortly by the Lord of the Rings TV show on Amazon uh, I have thoughts on this but I'm curious what you think you know I I'm the most excited for House of the dragon but I think I mean, Lord of the Rings, I have this fear. I don't know if you feel this way, Matt. I have this fear that that $550 million is just not going to pay off. Like, I, I like as much as it's Lord of the Rings show, I have this, like, weird gut feeling that it's just, like, going to do fine. It's going to do well, but it's not going to do what a $550 million right. show should do. But I do think, you know, in terms of comparing those two shows, uh, I do think you'll see Lord of the Rings outpace House of the Dragon at the beginning. And then I do think House of the Dragon would probably pick up towards the end. I'd agree with that. I, I think that we're all going to be talking about House of the Dragon and then Lord of the Rings will come out. We'll be like, uh, OK, it'll it'll rack up huge numbers. Yeah. But I don't think we're going to be talking about it like we will House of the Dragon. No. And I would say, you know, I, you know, sorry for Jeff Bezos's pockets, but he's fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> he'll, he'll be a good. Thank you to Julie Alexander for Parrot Analytics. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. All right, we are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Producer Craig is off on vacation this week. Uh, something about a Medi Spa. I don't know where he's at. he is. He'll probably come back with Tom Cruise's teeth, Bryce Dallas Howard's nose. Very happy for him. He's on the rewatchables once, and all of a sudden he's a diva. But we wish Craig well for the week. Uh, here with producer Devin. Devin, question for you. Are you planning to watch the Amber Heard interview by Savannah Guthrie on NBC this Friday. I am not. I am completely sick of this trial. So that's a great answer because my prediction today is that I think America will agree with you. And I don't think the ratings for this Amber Heard interview are going to be anything near what NBC thinks they are. They put out a little teaser this morning. You know, she doesn't blame the jury. That kind of went everywhere on social media. But we've got five days between now and the interview. And, you know, the normal Friday night NBC audience is like American Ninja Warrior and then Dateline. Dateline doesn't, it generates about 3 million, less than 3 million viewers. I My prediction today is I don't think the Amber Heard interview is going to get above 4 million. It'll have a little bump for Dateline. But if they think this thing is Harry and Meghan, they are sorely <laughs> mistaken. Yeah, I um I wish that the media would just let this die already. But I, I think do, people are sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that she has enough uh, haters who would watch solely just to comment on how much they hate her. Maybe, but aren't they just watching online? I mean, this stuff all ends up in our feeds anyways. And you don't really need to stay home on a Friday night to watch Amber Heard. You're going to get it in TikTok and Twitter and everywhere. That's a good point. And that does allow you to kind of... Um, take whatever narrative you want. From, sure, which is obviously <laughs> her whole point and what she thinks she deserves yeah. a new trial over. Uh, Very true. Yeah, we're not, I'm not judging her at all. I just don't think that 
the television audience wants to relive this trial, I think we're all kind of over it. And when I saw that today, I was sort of, oh, God. Just mercy. Yes, please. exactly. All right. That is the show for today. I want to thank our guests, Julia Alexander. I want to thank producer Devin and producer Craig. And we will see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.